My name is Brent. I doubt we've ever met, but I'll bet you know somebody like me. Every podcast has a Brent. You know, the one who's the smartest, wittiest, most charming, coolest, and the best looking. That's me. Welcome to Fandalites, the weekly podcast where Jenna and myself read and discuss every Animorphs book in order. This week we're doing book 25, The Extreme, which is anything but maybe extremely boring. So in The Extreme, everybody's favorite Chi, Eric, tells the gang about a New York initiative to utilize human satellites to beam Kandrona rays to every body of water on the planet. They sneak aboard the blade ship to get to the facility, only to discover it's in the Arctic. The Yerks have apparently cloned an extinct species from an extreme cold weather planet called the Venber to build their station, and then they send them after the Animorphs. The group spends a lot of time, a lot of pages, wandering around trying to survive in the Arctic and eventually destroys the Yerk base. Yeah, I mean, that's the long and short of it. Yeah, if, if you think that summary was uh, very perfunctory, it's about as much attention as the book pays to it. <laughs> I'm actually so glad you mentioned the satellite Kondrona rays, because I absolutely forgot that that was an aspect of this book. Because after they set that up, it never really gets mentioned again at all. Yeah, it did make me think about, like, the implications of chlorinated yerk pools, Hmm. saltwater yerk pools. Hmm. I don't know. It's it's just, it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. No, and it seems like a really flimsy excuse to get them out into the Arctic to do some survival antics, but also the survival antics are non-existent. Cassie's not making any fires. They're not killing any T-Rexes for its leather. (laughs) It's just, there's just not a lot happening. Yeah, they just kind of wander around and sometime alternately starve and weirdly feed in morph yeah hey let's talk about that right off the bat because let's do yeah so uh, okay they watch a polar bear hunt and and eat part of a seal circle of life it happens they decide to eat the remnants of that seal as wolves also find they'll be able to digest the raw meat tobias and axe Say, no, we're good. We are fleas and we drank some blood. Thanks, Marco. And then they just don't eat. And this, we've talked about this before and it's no less confusing now. Yeah, um, like I'm, I'm willing to overlook some of the raw seal wolf stuff, even though they like immediately morph back. So who cares yeah. what the digestive system, whatever. At least the stomachs are about the same size. Maybe they'd feel full. The flea blood feeding, when they morph back, like, I liked the theory that somebody had on Twitter about, like, the food used, uh, eaten while you're in morph being used to, like, power to generate the energy necessary for the zero space mass transfer. Except that, like, it's, it's like this much. It's like a period on a page. Yeah. When, when they're the flea. And then wouldn't they just be fucking starving when they got back to normal size? Yeah, exactly. They morph back to human and they've got their human stomachs with one drop of blood in it. And they're like, no, I'm good. That powered me up. 
it just it seem it doesn't seem right. I mean, I guess they sort of had to gloss over that because the whole reason they were fleas is that neither Tobias nor Axe has a wolf morph. So what were they going to do exactly? Well, Axe was just going to step on that seal meat like he does with everything else. That's a good fucking point. Yeah, he doesn't need whatever digestive enzymes a wolf stomach has. I guess Tobias probably could have just eaten the seal meat raw too. Probably. Yeah, he actually definitely could because that is like what he does. I don't think there's anything unique about seal meat other than it's probably pretty fatty. Well, they did say that the the polar bear ate most of the blubber and just left the good, good meat, which like, thanks, Nanook. (laughs) Thank you, Nanook. (laughs) Yeah, they also weirdly, I mean, they always defer to to Jake for big battle decisions. But for this one, they're all like, Cassie, is it cool if we eat that seal? We're starving to death. And Cassie's like, yeah, it's fine, guys. Jeez. Right, because it's. It's dead. It's not going to get any more dead. Yeah, they're not going to do any more damage to it. Uh, it seems fine. Yeah, uh, she gets pretty irate about it, which, like, understandable, because it's a real strange thing to saddle her with. Yeah, I mean, I appreciate that the group, like, she seems to have shifted the group morality compass in such a way that it is a question, which I actually really appreciate, but... It then they just put the burden of that moral choice on her, even though it's a pretty it's a pretty clean cut situation. Yeah, she has a whole big um, rant that she flies off with at Marco, um, where she's talking about like you know if you have to kill to eat, like go ahead and do it. That's how nature is, which seems to me to indicate that she's really sort of reconciled the struggle that she was having back in book nine vis-a-vis nature's brutality when they spent like the whole latter half of the book protecting some baby skunks from (laughs) tobias who definitely get a call out in this book yeah they Uh, do hit hit us back baby skunks we miss you but it is weird yeah cassie they they see the baby seals Uh, evidently the polar bear nanook fished out a mama seal and they see the baby seals and cassie's like well fucking circle of life kids get over it (laughs) yeah yeah i wonder if the skunk ramones are still their original lineup or if they found another skunk whose last name is ramon whoa i would like that a lot actually please don't fan art the skunk ramones (gasps) please fan art the skunk brent (laughs) brent does not speak for both of us please fan art the skunk ramones adorable Oh my god. I mean, what else? There's a lot that happens in this book, but mostly it's frustrating and hits along some of the questions we've had in the past. Also worth mentioning, this was the first ghostwritten book. Yeah, um, according to Seropedia, this book was ghostwritten by Jeffrey Zulke, who, as far as I can tell, is a goddamn ghost. He doesn't <laughs> appear to have a website or a Twitter. Uh, we wanted to We wanted to tag his Twitter in the show notes, Jeffrey Zulke, if you have a Twitter, please let us know and we will definitely tag you. Yeah, get um, us back. And, and it seems like most of what he's written since this, at least that's in his own name, um, are like nonfiction books targeted for the third to fifth grade market in scholastic stuff. So books about trains, books about Michael Phelps, <laughs> little mini biography <laughs> things. I things kids love to read yeah i remember when i was a librarian having to shelve those books and not really thinking twice about where they came from and to know that a human being wrote them is sort of a weird feeling for me 
I mean, it's a it's a lost era. I imagine nowadays those things are generated by the same neural net algorithms that make the weird Elsa beating up Spider-Man finger family Peppa Pig videos on YouTube. <laughs> that is horrifying. Yeah, I assume it's a lot of copy and paste from Wikipedia these days. <laughs> Maybe we're naysaying these very good scholastic books. So the interesting thing about this is I know that the ghostwritten books have like a, a real bad reputation. Uh, for being just a slog to read through. Yeah. But this one came off of that book, like right off of that book about the miniature aliens and everybody shrinking that so upset us. <laughs> um, So I don't really think this was any worse than the one before it. I'm going to be honest. I agree. And that was K.A. herself. Yeah, it's so hard to counterpoint that because... That last book was a real rough one, Brent. <laughs> it was a real bad one. Um, I think this has... I I don't know. It, it's so hard to say because it's the only ghost book that we have and it's going against a whole body of K.A. written books that are all... that are mostly very, very good. And we won't even really be able to, like, confirm or deny this next episode because 26 is a book written by K.A. Applegate. Yeah, and the person who co-wrote or uh, uh, ghost wrote this book only goes wrote one other book, so it, it's going to be really hard to compare all the ghost written books as a whole body. But I mean, this one it had some issues. Yeah. Um, Visor three, we get to see Visor three's like home, like his homeroom on the on the ship. And it's full of torture instruments, which seemed really bizarre to me. Because we, we, uh, the, the Visor 3, as far as we know, backstory-wise, is super into Andalite and Andalite technology and culture. So it seemed weird to me that he would just, it, it seemed cartoonishly sci-fi villainy that he would just have a bunch of prop torture instruments in his house. The Council of Thirteen said, you can paint your room any color you like. <laughs> And he went and bought a big can of black paint and some stickers <laughs> from Hot Topic. I I would actually like that more than just <laughs> having an Iron Maiden hung from the wall. Hung from the fucking wall. How big <laughs> yeah. are his goddamn ceilings? Those are large. <laughs> yeah, and why would you put it on the wall? How are you going to use it when it's on the wall, Visor? Did you just, like, have some studs that you weren't using to attach anything to? Do spaceships yeah. even have studs? Goddamn, dude. Think about this. Yeah, clearly no follow through on that. And then also just the fact that the the plot hook for this is that there's a satellite that's blasting out Kendrona rays that they need to shut down. And then that, it gets mentioned as a reason for them to land on Visor 3 and go on a wild adventure. And then it's never brought up again. The whole premise is pretty flimsy to begin with because, one, I, I don't really know why it has to be human satellites that do this. The Yerks are in orbit. Right. And, and They're two, in space. I don't know why the, like, broadcasting satellite has to be terrestrial. It doesn't. I don't see any reason why it does. Well, I, it does because we wanted to get them into the fucking Arctic Circle. Yeah, and the the fact that the fact that Eric is like, I've got another feeding pasture of the Vizers, that only barely worked the first time when the Vizzer doesn't know that they would be landing in his feeding pasture. It's so weird to me. It's it's a first of all, it's a bad plan that they're gonna go and just land on the Vizzer as flies and hitch a ride. 
Second of all, it works, and that's crazy. Especially since they required them to be there for more than two hours. Yes, and like the visitor notices that there are insects on him, and he just sort of shrugs it off. Like he's not like, there's insects on me, I should do what I've done for the last probably like 12 books, which is be concerned that there are animals on me. I mean, I actually kind of like this because it implies very heavily that canonically the Visser has, like, fleas. <laughs> just from running around in his feeding pasture, he's got fleas and ticks and shit just hanging out. And he can't reach them because his arms don't go all the way back to his butt. They're attached to his throat. No torso. Yeah. This book specifically mentioned that Visor 3 reaches his butt with his hand to scratch it, which we all know is impossible, because first of all, stop what you're doing right now. I don't know where you're at listening to this podcast, but reach behind you and extend your arm back and, and think to yourself, is that deer butt distance? Because the answer is no. The answer, okay, the answer is maybe. But the true answer is you have a torso that you can use to torque your body. Andalites <laughs> don't have that. Andalites don't have that reach. Please do fan art of the Visser 3 twerking. <laughs> Wouldn't that just be bucking? Ah, uh, I'm sure that's what furries call it. Hmm. The point is, it's a weird hole in this book that the Visser's like, yeah, there's animals on me, but I ain't, I ain't concerned. I think uh, Fandalite's canon, which is more canon than canon. Yes. Uh, I think is that Andalites would use their tail blade to scratch their ass. Oh, yeah. I just assume. Like, if you evolved without torsos, and by evolved, I mean created a morph <laughs> without a torso, more canon than canon, then yeah, you would just <laughs> use your tail. A torso's just a target. It's that you always <laughs> aim for center mass, right? So by removing the torso from their perfect morph, they are <laughs> less target to hit. Exactly. I got... Lost in the maze of our own secondary <laughs> canon. <laughs> we we really bad. need to put together a setting bible. Oh my god. Uh, can that setting bible include the fact that Eric was Beethoven's valet? Uh, this guy. <laughs> this guy. How many chi are there supposed to be? Like a couple hundred? Yeah, I don't think a lot. And, and and this one was Beethoven's valet, Brent. I don't see what's so weird that he would mention that about that. I consider this to be historical self-insert fanfic, personally. Because <laughs> who can check? Who can verify or deny that? Exactly. No one can call him on his bullshit. <laughs> he just wants to feel included, okay? He wants to feel special. I like that a lot, actually. That's the chink in Eric's armor. <laughs> The, the cheek. <laughs> that, was, no, that was very bad. Don't laugh at that. But honestly, uh, this or three's bizarro torture chamber taste and decor kind of fits um, with his portrayal in this book. Because there's very early on where Marco wishes our arch enemies were as tame as a bunch of comic book supervillains. But that's like literally what Visser 3 is. He is a comic book mm. supervillain. No kidding. With his grandiose plans and his inability to understand that if there are flies on your body, it's the fucking Andalite or Animorphs. He has for certain raised one fist to the sky, shaking <sighs> it and shouting, Damn you, Andalite <laughs> bandits! 
That was a very good Saturday morning cartoon villain voice, Brent. Well, thank you. <laughs> um, I, I uh, what else? I mean, there's a lot to talk about. How, let's talk about Axe and Axe's fucking attitude in this goddamn book. Man, he is so spicy. This whole He's book, so spicy, Brent. I don't know what it is, but like. He, they're talking about how Visor 3 smells, and Axe is like, um, this is an Andalite body, and Andalites have never been known to stink. And I know what I just said sounded like a joke, because I said it in a joke voice, but that's literally a quote from this book. Yeah, that's like some shit we would make up. It's a, it's like a joke that we would say Axe would say, not a thing that he actually says in this book. But it is a thing. It is actually a thing that he says in this actual book. Oh, and it's like, it goes without comment. Nobody reacts to it, which is crazy. I think they're all just put off because he keeps, like, being real twisted up about the fact that he has to use human minutes <sighs> and, and human systems of measurement. And he just seems real salty about that this whole book. And so I think they're all just like, whatever, Axe. They're just cutting him some, cutting him some slack. Yeah, they anticipate his spiciness and are just not engaging with it, which I appreciate. Because it's the entire, the the whole book. He's spicy the whole time. It's so strange. I mean, I guess I probably would be too if the best plan we could come up with was hitch a ride on the Visser. And then I ended up like freezing half to death mm. at the North Pole and eating blood. Yeah, if your only meal is blood and even just a very little amount of blood at that, that's gotta, that's gotta suck. Uh, and th- then the way that they managed to, their, their plan B... For being able to demorph, because the trip on the blade ship's like three hours. It's longer than they can stay in morph. Their whole plan for that depends on Visser 3 acting like an insane cartoon supervillain. <laughs> because they just keep thought speaking to some Hork Bajir outside, like Narrowband. They're not BCC in uh, Visser the, the, himself. The, yeah, Visser on this. And just asking them to come in. And so they come in, and the Visser just immediately starts unloading on them. Like, how dare you come in here? What is wrong with you? And it never occurs to him. Hey, uh, <laughs> something weird's happening. Yeah, I didn't call them in. What's going on? Ugh. He gets like so cheesed off that by the third time one of them comes in, he like cuts their head off with his tail blade, which seems excessive. Yeah. Even yeah. for Visser 3, it seems excessive. Yeah. This is also the scene in which um, um, a taxon gets cut in half. And then starts to eat its other half. Add one instance of auto-cannibalism to the drive-in totals for this series. Yeah, we've never seen a taxon do this before, for which I am grateful. But it does, it's a weird moment. Because they all just sort of watch. Yeah, and it really, I mean, what would you, would you do anything different if you saw, if if you saw a taxon get cut in half and then one half starts eating the other half? Would, I would you really be away, able to Brent. do anything other than go like, what is happening? <laughs> I would turn my head and look away. Turn <laughs> and look away. I I don't, I think I would be too much in shock to look away. Okay. Well, that's fair. Maybe Marco just couldn't draw himself away. Right. Like, is this real life? What is happening? Uh. This is just more... Makes me more curious about the Taxons. I want to know more about them. K.A. Applegate, please write the Taxon Chronicles. Oh, please write the Taxon Chronicles. Please We've been write waiting. the Taxon Chronicles. It's 2018. You can make them as grim dark as you want. Yes! Uh, unleash. Unleash your horrors upon us, K.A. I mean, I know this series 
you wrote it very dark for the time period and the age range that's targeting it, but now all of the people who are into Animorphs are pretty much grown up, so you can go HBO original series on it if you if if that's where you want to do. Yeah, if you can top auto cannibalism, and I know you can. I know you can. You know you can, KA. Do it. We're ready for it. We're here for it. My body is ready, KA. So the Venber, let's talk about their whole deal. Uh, <laughs> fine. Okay, let's talk about the Vember. So these aren't real Vember because the Vember are extinct. These are Vember human hybrids because the Yurks somehow used the non-carbon-based life form. Like, they had some samples and then they did, like, the Jurassic Park thing where they spliced <laughs> in frog DNA. But yeah. uh, use human DNA because sure, why not? That's that's how DNA works, right? Yeah, pretty much. They just sort of hand wave it together, so now there are these things, and they're super ice dedicated and can ski and ecolocate. Sure, they've got weird bifurcated forearms. Yeah, I'll give it to uh, whoever designed them, whether it was Ka or Mister Zelki. They are suitably alien. Yeah, they sound pretty alien. And they're programmed kind of like the hammerhead sharks were supposed to be in that, or I guess were effectively in that one book. They're not ever like a huge threat. Like they're there to keep the Animorphs moving, but they don't ever like do really anything. I think like the most they do is melt and then start like freezing people's feet to the ground and stuff. Yeah, that's it, though. Like, they if you replaced them with just hork and those hork were just hunting the Animorphs or humans and parkas or something, like, I don't think this book would have been any different. I don't understand the point of the Venber. Just to, like, throw Axe off because they're supposed to be extinct? To explain the, um, to, to introduce the five, which never come up ever again in the entire books... Yeah, I'm actually checking real quick to see if the Venber ever come up again. Because maybe it's just this, maybe this is just Mr. Zolke trying to leave his mark on these books by creating a bunch of extinct creatures. You think this is maybe one of those situations like how they keep having to repurpose already written horror scripts for other franchises into (laughs) Hellraiser movies so that they don't lose the rights? Yes. But it's like, okay, so here's the plot outline. And he's like, well, I got a couple sci-fi short stories over here that haven't been published. I can probably jam parts of that into it. Yeah, actually, that sounds exactly right. Because can I tell you, Venver do not appear in any other book in this series. Um, um, yes, perfect. Delightful. Ugh. Delicious. <laughs> the book ends with them getting to the base and seemingly taking like a day it takes them a so long to get there, even though it's only supposed to be a mile away. And they get to the base, and the Venber are programmed to attack them. And Marco and Cassie, like, stick around in a specific room to lure the Venber in, because the room's warm enough that it'll melt them. And we have this moment that is like, Marco's like, I have to be here to witness this atrocity of these extinct Venber human hybrids melting. And it it felt so disingenuous to me because they've seen so much worse shit 
in the last like five books, they've seen worse stuff than this. And it felt like this was supposed to be a moment of gravitas that was absolutely not earned by the book. Hell, they've done worse stuff than this. Yeah, like really recently. (laughs) They themselves have committed genocide on an entire race. Yeah, so the fact that Marco was like, no, somebody's going to be here to witness this. It was like, okay, Marco, maybe chill out because you haven't earned this. I did like that it was Marco and Cassie, though. um, Oh. Because, well, and it's the same thing at the beginning uh, where Jake sent Cassie to tell him that they'd been spying on um, Sir Sir not appearing in the rest of the series. (laughs) Yes, as always, Cassie and Marco's friendship remains to be remains a, a positive note in this show. The, the Cassie and Marco friendship is one of my favorite relationships, I think, in, in the Animorphs. Just because so too. they just seem to be genuinely friends. Yeah, and it's kind of nice that it's not like they're pushed together because of dire circumstances. They just, yeah, they're just buddies. Mm-hmm. I like that a lot. Yeah, I do uh, too. This book also has... Something that we haven't seen in any book so far, which is morphing sound effects. <laughs> uh, like, there are three separate occasions Marco gives us a sound effect for his morphs, which are, in order, sploot, schloop, and pop. I hope my I got a new pop filter. Let's see how it did with those. <laughs> well, I just want to say, first off, a sploot is already a thing. That's... When a dog lays down on its stomach with its back leg sticking out behind it. Oh. Corgis do it a lot. That's a sploot. Uh, so I'm not sure what he's trying to convey there when talking about morphing. It's pretty confusing. I also don't know what schloop really means in this context. I think that's a type of sailboat. Oh, yeah, a schloop. <laughs> <laughs> it's a type of sailboat that you, you try to say when you're drunk. <laughs> So that was an interesting texture that we got in this. Yeah, that's uh, Jeffrey Zulke play around a little. Yeah, that's fun. I like sound effects. It's a fun addition. <laughs> Let's talk about Derek. So yeah. they they demorph in front of this kid in a boat out hunting um, some some sort of First Nations person. They assume Inuit. Yes. Which is probably a decent guess. Yeah, considering where they're at in the world. Uh, and he seems to sort of take the whole thing in stride. Um, personally, I love Derek. Yes, Derek MVP, make him an animorph. Uh-huh, 100%, because he's just like, so y'all are animal spirits? And they're like, uh, maybe? <laughs> he's like, all right, cool, cool. What's up? <laughs> yeah, and they're like, yeah, except for that one, he's an alien. And Derek's just like, okay. Yeah. Why not? Okay. Yeah. That's fine. You want some pelts? (laughs) You look cold. You want some pelts. I don't think spirit animals are supposed to be cold, but here's some pelts. (laughs) Yeah. And they they do cop pretty quickly. Look, we we never said that we're animal spirits. (laughs) Yeah. Which I appreciate. I I mean, thanks for assuming, but not quite. Uh, And he... Leads them to his friend Nanook, the polar bear. Yeah. Who he's been following around uh, when he goes out hunting since he was a little kid. Yeah, which was really sweet. I like the idea that 
Nanook is somebody he sees from afar and doesn't engage because it is a wild polar bear and that's a bad idea. But like, they know, they know each other. That's nice. So I don't actually know anything really about the cultures of that area and society. Is it normal for like teenagers to go off on multi-day hunting trips by themselves? I honestly don't know either. Uh, I mean, it seems like it's possible. Like if you if you need to make money for your family, why not? Why not go hunting? Get some pelts. Befriend a polar bear. I guess I just assumed that there would be like multiple people involved. I mean, I kind of do too. But I, again, I don't know the situation. Yeah. If, if you have any insight on... Um, How accurate this portrayal of Inuit culture is. Yes. Presumably Inuit. Presumably Inuit. Because I don't know if we ever actually get confirmation on that. No, not really. But I like that. I mean, well, this is another moment that felt a little weak to me. Because even though I really like Derek and Nanook and that whole situation, they see Nanook like a bunch of times without really trying. And they don't ever decide to get its DNA until Derek is like, yeah, I know that polar bear. His name is Nanook. Yeah. Go for it. Like, there's no reason why they couldn't have done it before, because there wasn't anything different after meeting Derek, except that they know it, that Derek calls it Nanook, which was adorable. I mean, they just wait until they have somebody that they can beat it up in front of. Yeah, it, that seemed weird, because he was like, yeah, that polar bear's my friend. What? Wait, what are you going to What are you gonna do to it? Uh, and the answer is grizzly bear attack and gorilla full Nelson. <laughs> which is just, I don't... It doesn't seem like a great way of making friends. Like, the polar bear seemed pretty chill? Yeah, I mean, I thought for certain, because the cover of this book is Marco morphing a polar bear, so it was pretty much a given that they would acquire Nanook at some point. I thought that they were going to do it after Nanook ate the seal, because he's full, what's he going to do? Right. Like, he's probably not going to attack them because he's full, but no, they have to wait. And then bully him. Yeah, and I I still am not 100% certain how Marco actually acquired Nanook because he was the one restraining him for the rest of when you acquire him. I'm glad you mentioned that because that made me think of your theory about why some of the animals animals that they're acquiring don't seem to be going into that trance. Uh Uh-huh. Because your theory was that it was adrenaline and that that was causing the animals to be too pumped up to be tranquilized. But this polar bear was getting attacked and it's still, they don't seem to have any trouble acquiring it. That does sort of, that does sort of put a pin in that, doesn't it? Yeah. My my only guess is that maybe this is, this polar bear is so chill, (laughs) even though it's getting attacked, it's like not even worried. It sees its buddy Derek there, and it's just like, oh, well, if he's not helping, this must be fine, I guess. Yeah, any friends of Derek's are friends of, oof, why are you attacking me? <laughs> God damn. <laughs> this book. So there's a whole lot of pages uh, spent on pretty much nothing, and then they invade the the Yurk base. Um, they kind of try to sneak in there as polar bears. You would think that that would tip off some of the Venber because there's apparently only one polar bear in the entire North Pole. Yeah. It made me think of, 
It made me think of the book where they're wild horses uh-huh. and they just walk into area and then uh, are just sort of hanging out as wild horses. So like they were trying 91. to do that again. <laughs> yes, they're trying to break into zone. 91, a thing I definitely remembered the name of. I've decided that Zone 91 is um, an alternative rock radio station. (laughs) You're listening to Zone 91, The Edge. (laughs) That fits really well. (laughs) And I think it'll help me remember it better. (laughs) It's it's just another fucking clear channel affiliate. (laughs) Yeah, so they just sort of wander in and get called out immediately because it was a bad plan yeah right the, the first time that a human controller sees them they just immediately start shouting alarm alarm <laughs> which i consider to be their actual alarm system <laughs> yeah it doesn't they don't they don't yell polar bears or andalite bandits they yell alarm which is crazy <laughs> now that i stop and think about it that is um, the worst why would you yell that because they were gonna install like an actual alarm system <laughs> with, like the crank that makes you know makes noise or whatever but it was still on its way like <laughs> delivery from the blade ship so in the meantime this is just kind of how they're all you know getting by like all right guys if you see something remember just start shouting alarm over and over again like you are the alarm this is a temporary thing, I swear. It's not a temporary thing. <laughs> I know it seems pretty lame, but let, let's we all we're all in this together. If you see a polar bear, yell alarm. God. I mean it works though. That's the okay, maybe that's my issue with this book, is that their plans are as dumb as ever, but they work. And that doesn't seem fair. See, the thing is that that hasn't really changed since the beginning of the series. Well, I would argue that a lot of times their plans are bad and they go bad. This, these plans were bad, but they more or less work without too much disruption. Yeah, I guess so. Like the classic bl- bad plan of let's morph trout and get sucked up into a tanker Fuck. ship did God actually went. go wrong and they had to improvise. I guess this plan also actually sort of went wrong. The stowaway on Visser 3 and then wreck their shit plan did go wrong. They ended up spending most of the book freezing and starving. That's, yeah, that's true. That's fair. That does go pretty weird for them. I think, if, if anything, they uh, this Wander in as Polar Bears playbook, they expected to go wrong because they did it before. At 101 Zone 91. <laughs> WKRP. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. But it doesn't. Like, it goes exactly to plan. (laughs) Like, they just walk in, and the Venber are sicked on them, and then they go into a slightly warmer room, and the Venber melt, and then they just leave with a blade ship. And even the blade ship part goes bizarrely well, because they just, like, fly it out of there. Oh, I mean, so they, uh, it's it's a bug fighter. Right, sorry, a bug fighter, yeah. But yeah, yeah, they just fly it out of there, and- this is something I didn't actually catch. Neither of us caught this. Um, but the the goofs page in Seropedia pointed it out, and I can't believe it. Uh, so the whole crux of their blow up this base plan is Marco like mans the weapon system and fires at it. And he's his 
he says like, oh yeah, no, I've been in a bug fighter before. I've done the weapons. I can do that. And it didn't really, I didn't really catch it because I was thinking, yeah, he has done that before. Well, Seropedia pointed out he did that before in the fucking Sanrio Rip timeline in the Forgotten Hmm. that was erased. So he should not remember having done that before. Jake's the only one who should remember him having done that before. Yeah, and that's what's frustrating about that is that even the professional Animorph authors can't keep track of all the Sanrio Rip bullshit. Right? Because the way that these ghostwritten books happened is not like they just turned in the manuscript and then it gets published. Like, K.A. provided the outline to the writer that she was working with. They wrote some stuff, and then K.A. and her editor went back over it to to finalize it. So, literally, K.A. Applegate cannot keep track of their (laughs) time travel Sanrio Rip shenanigans. Yeah, and they all, everybody remembered enough to remember that Marco has used it before, but not enough to remember that it was some alternate reality bullshit frustrating extremely why aren't they as obsessed with their bullshit stuff as i was gonna say us we didn't catch this either actually no, but not. why can't they be as obsessed as seropedia oh <laughs> uh th- thank you fandom <laughs> yeah thank you fandom all right I-, I do have a couple more things uh just real quick that i wanted to hit before we we peace out this week um one that there is a point in this book where Marco lays forth that he wishes he was a little bit taller and also wishes he were a baller. Mm. And probably wished he had a girl who looked good that he could call her. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, that that follows from his uh, disastrous date with Marion at the beginning of the book. (laughs) Who thinks he likes classical music, which is pretty endearingly wrong. Yeah. And then the only other thing is that there's a quote at the end of this from Marco that is just really dark, um, where he's talking about, and this is them trying to retroactively earn the moment of pathos, but the quote is, you can't be in a war and think about all the stuff that happens, which sounds funny out of context, but the next couple of sentences go into like all the fear and pain. You can't keep it in your head because you go nuts and... Like, that's true. They've had to block a lot of shit. Yeah. I appreciate that that's very much like a high schooler way of breaking that down. Like, you just can't think about stuff. Yeah. But but it's also a lot heavier because they have some some for real stuff that they can't think about. Yes. Uh, is there anything else? So, uh, if, I, I think we can do another zero space transmissions segment because we got another listener email oh excellent uh this one is from uh i can't tell you my real name but you can call me walt (laughs) okay walt Uh, they write hey brent and jenna love the podcast on your last episode you talked about how it seemed weird that so many andalites have children with other species despite their attitude of superiority but a lot of our social mores about sex tend to be based on controlling impulses that threaten the status quo of society, like how male adultery is often tolerated in patriarchal societies, but female adultery isn't because it threatens the patriarchal inheritance patterns. What I'm saying is, maybe so many Andalites were falling in love with other species and turning into nothlets that it was causing real social problems, so they had to make up social reasons why it isn't appropriate to preserve their imperialistic social structure. These Andalites didn't get freaky despite the rules. They needed the rules because they're all freaky all the time. Anyway... (laughs) 
Thanks for hearing my theory. Would love to hear your thoughts. I mean, we do know. We do know the Andalites are all freaky all the time. For a variety of reasons. I think this might also explain why they all seem so reticent to morph. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. I think this is a really well-reasoned argument. Yeah. I, I, it's so well-reasoned, I don't know if I have anything to say about it. Do we want to rule this more canon than canon? Um, yes. All right. Uh, agreed. Seconded. Hereby ruled. More canon <laughs> than canon. Thanks, Walt. <laughs> They're all getting freaky all the time. All right. Well, that'll do it for this week. Thanks for listening, everyone. Um, We really appreciate you guys uh, taking the time out of your week to listen to us gab on about our dumb nostalgic Very important stuff. Yes, very important stuff. (laughs) Um, If you have any commentary, hit us up at Fandalites on Twitter, fandalites.tumblr.com, fandalites at gmail.com. Our website is www.fandalites.com. Thanks to Dustin O'Dell for the use of his music for our intro and outro. You can find his stuff at dustinodell.bandcamp.com. Next week, we'll be covering book number 26, The Attack. The Attack! <laughs> which which is another Jake POV um, and has a prologue, so that'll be fun. Yep. And is written by K.A. Applegate herself, coming back to guest star. Yeah! Um, so we'll see you then, and until next time, remember... Nostalgia is a drug.